is a complex electronic illusion. And yet it's something we take for granted. But the video age is only just beginning. This Philips television also receives teletext. The remote control gives immediate access to CFAX and Oracle. Information, facts, figures, constantly being updated. listening to Teletext People. Teletext People is a social record of people that have been involved in either the production or the restoration or the artwork of the blocky medium that once dominated our TV screens in Great Britain before 2012. In the series you will hear from the pioneers, the people who made it tick and also people who have only recently visited the Teletext medium but are in their own way keeping it alive for the preservation for others in the future. In this episode, Ian Morton-Smith joined by his wife, Julie Smith, and I opened by asking more how he got into teletext. Okay, I was... Uh, as I think I've, I've probably mentioned before, I always wanted to be a journalist. It ran in my family, um, and I was working as a chief sub-editor on the Middlesex Chronicle newspaper, which was part of the uh, Surrey Comic Group. Um, and I'd been there for about a year and a half, um, and it wasn't a particularly interesting area or a particularly interesting job being a chief sub on the Middlesex Chronicle. And I picked up something called the UK Press Gazette, which was the trade magazine for journalism, um, one day, and I was flicking through it. And uh, there was an advert there for BBC CFAX. Now, I hadn't got a clue what CFAX was. Nobody had at that point. But it had the magical three letters BBC in front of it. And I really fancied working for the BBC. So I applied for the job. And uh, I got interviewed by the editor of CFAX, a guy called Colin McIntyre, who I clicked with immediately. He, he was a lovely man, a very experienced journalist, um, and he, it was like he pulled the curtains open and showed me the future. Um, he interviewed me on the, the sixth floor of Television Centre in an apparatus room um, where he had one teletext terminal set up and a teletext television. And he showed me teletext, and it was basically words on a screen. And I said, well, where's the television picture? He said, it's behind it. And I, I asked him to explain it, and he, he explained what, how teletext worked technically. He said, teletext has come out of um, the research department at Kingswood Warren down in Surrey, um, there is spare bandwidth in the television signal. It's a 625 line signal, but they don't use all 625 lines to broadcast the television picture. There's something um, called the vertical blanking interval, and that's when the little dot that makes up the picture that goes from the top right to the bottom left of the screen whizzes back to the top to start the next scan. And 
the, the research department people said, well, we ought to be able to do something with that spare capacity. We could put subtitles for the hard of hearing in that area. So they developed teletext as a, as a concept initially to provide subtitles to the hard of hearing. And having done that, they said, well, we're not going to use all the capacity just for subtitles for the deaf. We could do something else with it. And Colin got involved at that point and he said, well, we could provide a news service, a, 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 effectively a digital news service, long before digital was a, was a buzzword. Um, and that's how Teletext started. It, it was basically Colin's idea to use that spare bandwidth, not only for the, for the deaf, but also as a general news service. And he showed it to me. And I just loved the idea. It really got to me. And I thought, this is magical. Um, it's going to be so fast. We can do so many things with it. Um, so I left the interview, having said, you know, I, I was really keen on the idea. And at the time, I think I had been offered another job by um, Nat Druid and Son, who owned the Middlesex Chronicle. And I told Colin that. And I got a postcard from him about three days after that, saying... Um, unless you turn out to be an Albanian irredentist, and I had to look up that, that in the dictionary to find out what an irredentist was, it's a rebel basically, <laughs> he said you will be offered a job as a journalist working on CFAX, so don't take any other ones. Um, and sure enough I got a letter about a week after that offering me the job as the first full-time journalist working on CFAX, apart from Colin. Um, and I went into Television Centre and it was just unbelievable. Um, a, working in an area where I'd never been before, working in television, um, with all the glamour that that has going with it, but doing something that virtually nobody else in the building understood. Um, and uh, it, it was an extraordinary learning experience. When we first started, that a teletext page consists of 24 rows um, and 40 characters horizontally um, so you're very limited in what you can actually write in terms of a, of a news story and I reckon that is the best training a journalist could ever have because you have to encapsulate a story in about 80 words and uh, lots of journalists love the sound of their own voices or the sound the, the, the look of their own uh, typewriter um, and they tend to go on far more than they need to teletext doesn't let you do that you have to be concise and you have to be accurate. Um, and initially, there was only a single page uh, in, in the broadcast system. After a while, they developed rolling pages so that you can actually have page one of three, page two of three, page three of three. Uh, and that meant you could actually run a story on a bit. But even then, you had to effectively have a first paragraph that summarised the story because people might come in on the second page and they wouldn't, they wouldn't have seen the first paragraph. So you almost had to reproduce it in a slightly different form. And that was great training. Um, from being the only uh, journalist, Colin then interviewed uh, for four sub-editors, of which I was one, and four research assistants. So the initial CFAX full complement, if you like, was eight people plus Colin. Um, and we were still based up in the on the sixth floor. Um, and the way that, that Teletext got on air at that point was you'd, create, you'd, you'd actually create a, a page on a, a VDU screen. 
And when you were happy with it and you proofread it, you pushed a button and it ran off a punched tape. And you grabbed the punched tape, ran down two flights of stairs to the transmission area, put it in a tape reader, pushed another button, and having selected which page number you wanted it to go on, from 1 to 24, because there were only 24 pages, you watch the tape whiz through, grab it, run back upstairs, look at it on air, and then discover you'd made a spelling mistake, and you had to do the whole blooming thing again. But it was... Uh, it was real state-of-the-art stuff, you know. Nobody had done it before, um, and it was great fun. And we got to the point where um, it became uh, a point of honour for CFAX to get the story, the news story, on air first before the ITV equivalent Oracle got it on air. Uh, they were based over in, in another part of London. Um, and I'm sure they had the same view. They, you know, they were trying to compete with CFAX as well. But it was, it was just so exciting because it was so fast. Where are you getting your news from? Is it coming in on wire services? It is coming in on wire services. The, initially, there were four wire services. There was the Press Association. There was um, Extel, um, which was the racing results. Um, there was uh, Reuters, which was foreign news. And then there was GNS, which stood for General News Service, and that was the BBC's own news service. So all the correspondents all around the world and all around the UK would file their copy and a central newsroom would put it onto the teleprinter and it went out to every single newsroom across the BBC. Um, so we used to get up from our seats at the VDU, walk over, and, and it was called a rip and read, mm. the, the main news uh, bulletin. And literally you do that, you'd rip it off, take it back to the terminal, read through the stories. If there was anything new in, on a story that we already had on air, then you, you'd update it. If there was a new story, obviously that would take priority. Um, and then you had to try to work out, as a sub-editor, where you were going to fit it into the transmission sequence. So there might have been a story about, think of an example, about something that had happened in Antigua, um, which had been big news earlier in the day, but had gone down the importance of, of the news stack. And you get a news story coming in about uh, a fire in Bradford, for example, um, which would replace that story. So you, you put the Bradford story up at the top, shuffle all the other pages down and retransmit the whole thing. So the, the, the broadcast magazine, they were called magazines right from the beginning, was always changing. Um, and we uh, fairly early on, we introduced a headlines page. Initially, there was um, a, a, a first page, which was just an index, which basically said pages, that was on page 100, page 101 to page 110 would be news, um, page 111 would be weather, page 112 would be financial news, etc., etc. Um but as time went on, and it became a bit more sophisticated and they added more pages to the transmission sequence, um, uh, there was a headlines page created. So that acted as, as a sort of first point of entry for people who were just interested in news. And subsequently, there was a financial news uh, index page, a sports index page, and, uh, and general entertainment, I suppose you'd call it, TV listings, things like that. Yeah. Um, when Teletext started... Uh, there were 32 VBI lines that could be used for uh, other purposes. They couldn't use all of them 
because if they used too many, you'd get white dots flickering across the top of the screen mm. and people would complain about that. So they allocated 24 VBI lines for teletext use. Um, and they went from one initially up to two and then up to four. And gradually over time, they, they allocated more VBI lines. And that was important because teletext got transmitted at the rate of two pages per line per second. Mm -hmm. So if you had 10 pages, um, my math isn't that good, <laughs> work that one out. Um, um, and initially it was very slow. You can actually watch the numbers turning very, very slowly because they were only using a couple of VBI lines. Mm. As they added more VBI lines, so it got faster and faster and you could add more and more pages. Mm. And eventually they got up to 100 pa that 100 page magazine was was the sort of standard mm -hmm. block, if you like, for yeah. for Telefest. Um and it, it it was about trying to grow the editorial production team in order to be able to service all those pages that were then transmitting. Um, initially, the thing that transmitted Teletext was called a core store, and it it was only capable of holding twenty. Uh, it was actually thirty pages but the last six of them were all engineering um, pages, so that they could, uh, things like a, a clock cracker. The infamous croc, clock cracker that everybody... Or even a croc cracker. Yeah. So initially it was on a core store, um, and then the next stage in development for, for, C, for CFAX was that they actually had a purpose-built computer in a 19-inch rack mount um, sitting in the, in the, in the uh, CFAX newsroom, and about the same time... Um, the BBC allocated room 7059 on the very top floor of Television Centre as a dedicated CFAX newsroom and production office. Um, and there were up to, I suppose there must have been about 35 people working in there um, at peak. Obviously it got bigger after that as well. Um, but the, the first computer was, was stuck in there. Uh, it was, I can't remember the name of the company that produced it, um, but we were using um, visual display units created by a company called Lean Shear. Um, huge, great green metal things. Um, and you, <laughs> They weren't very well earthed. So if, if, if you touch the, the casing in the wrong, at the wrong time, you get a belt off it. Um, and I don't know whether that had any impact on the, the transmission system, but it was called Esmeralda. Um, that was Colin's name for it. He came up with it. I don't know why Esmeralda, but um, it developed teething problems, um, and the only way it would just stop working basically it would stop updating pages. The pages would still be going out, but they weren't being updated, and the only way you could get round that was to go over, walk round the back of the of the production terminals and push the reboot button on Esmeralda and wait about four minutes while it rebooted, and then everything would start up again. And I, whatever the problem... I never did know what the problem was, but it got worse and worse and worse. And, and another uh, sub-editor called Ian Irving, who went on to work with Intel Facts later on, uh, and I used to take it in turns to walk around there and push the reboot button. And on one fabulous occasion, we did it dozens and dozens of times in one day. And I think if I'd had a hammer... <laughs> You'd have rebooted I, it. I would have rebooted it permanently. Yeah, and I think um, partly as a result of, of that, the BBC uh, then had realised that CFAX was going to be a major uh, medium, 
and, and they commissioned a company called Logica, um, based in central London, to design and produce a, a pucker mm-hmm. teletext transmission system. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were two incredibly clever guys called Jeff Cowell and Ray Goff, who were the software engineers who were given that task. Um, and they produced um, the Logica Context system, um, which was run, it, it was a, a fairly major installation, and that actually went down into the central apparatus room at Television Centre. Um, but that meant that we could transmit up to eight magazines, uh, it could insert teletext on up to 16 VBI lines, and it, it, that, it was at that point that it started to really take off because we were the, the, the volume of information we could put out there was just phenomenal. Um, and CFAX was expanded from just being a news service um, to, to have more of a sort of general entertainment element as well. It, the primary um, object of the service was always news and current affairs. Um, but uh, on, I remember vividly that Colin McIntyre came to me uh, as, a, as a chief sub on CFAX at that point and said, Christmas is coming up, we'd like you to put together a Christmas magazine. Um, and Georgie Howarth, who was one of the other uh, ladies who was working at CFAX and I, spent about a month putting together um, all sorts of, of silly ideas for, for a, a CFAX Christmas magazine. And the silliest idea of all was that um, we decided to run a bingo competition on CFAX. And the Bing, way that bingo we, was all the rage back then, wasn't it? Uh, it certainly was. Um, and the way that we did it was to have cards printed, a pack of six cards, um, by the, the BBC uh, printing office. Um, and we invited people to write in for, for these cards so that they and their family members could play bingo on CFAX over Christmas. How do you get the numbers out there? You hide them on individual teletext pages. So you have to press reveal, the reveal button, <laughs> in order to, to find out whether there's a number on the page. But that meant that people had to look at every one of about 400 pages when you include the rolling pages in order to, to play the, the bingo game. And we had about 500 sets of cards printed and started advertising it. And uh, we had, I think we, it, ultimately we put out about 3,000 sets of these cards because so many people wrote in for them. Um, and we thought, well, that's great, but nobody's going to sit. When they realise what they've got to do, nobody is going to sit there and go all the way through every single page. And it was over the 12 days of Christmas, so you had to do it every day for 12 days. Um, and we were completely stunned by the number of, of sets of cards we, we got back. Um, there, I think there were more than 500. Hmm. Now, you know, in the context of, of national broadcasting, that's not very many. But when you think of the effort that went in to do that, it was quite phenomenal. Yeah. It really was. It was remember, great fun to do. Do you remember what the prize was for anybody who did I, it? It was something like, it was a £10 book token or something like <laughs> It was something really <laughs> minuscule um, oh. because it was the BBC that at yeah. that point they weren't going to waste a lot of money on, on big yeah. prizes. Yeah. Unlike the behemoth of a broadcasting company, um, you've actually got a more personable um, one-to-one contact uh, between the station and, and the viewer, which yeah. is something which, uh, which which obviously gets more and more 
more more more prevalent as as we move into the digital age. But it was, I guess it started right there. Yeah, it did. And later on in my career, when I was running uh, Fortel uh, Intel Facts uh, for Channel Four. Um, we had a, a similar thing. We had something called um, gallery, where we invited viewers to design their own teletext graphic pages, and we used to send out a pack that consisted of, of a number of teletext page grids and a pack of felt tip pens, and we invited people to. Uh, I mean, obviously, they didn't understand the technical side of it about control characters and, and having to, to have contiguous graphics or non-contiguous graphics. But we used to get them back and do our best interpretation mm-hmm. of a teletext graphic page. And again, we had thousands, literally thousands of people writing in uh, and sending us stuff in. Um, and I, I, I wish now I'd kept all of the, the stuff that we got. I, I mean, it, a lot of it got thrown away when uh, Intel Facts ended. But it was... The point you made, Carl, is absolutely right. It's about one-to-one. Suddenly, you're inviting people to, to deliver something to the, the television company, which is going to go on air. And people can say, look, I did that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, get Auntie Bessie round and Uncle Fred and say, that's, that's my Teletext graphic on there. It is. And that was fantastic. Um, and I, I think that was, if you like... The, um, the, the way that, that the internet actually took over when it started because of the interaction with people. Teletext had very limited interaction um, and obviously the speed of transmission was, was a, a, a restricting factor. Um, with the internet, obviously, it was instantaneous. Um, but it was I think the internet probably took a lot from Teletext as, as a way of involving the audience. Um, and I think we were all quite proud of that, um, even though ultimately the internet killed Teletext Stone Dead because it was faster. When so you're up in uh, what was it room seven seven zero five nine seven zero five nine, which is etched on the memory. Um, so what what was the next move after that then? CFAX continued to grow. Initially, um, you could only buy a Teletext equipped set. Um, uh, for an awful lot of money, they were f- much, much more expensive than, than non-teletext equipped sets. But um, a lot of people started renting teletext sets, and that started to increase the market. And then, basically, they realised that the the hardware to to receive teletext was actually very cheap, so the price started to come down. And all the major manufacturers were doing it: Philips, Pi, um, Rediffusion, mm-hmm. um, Baird. Uh, not so much the, the Japanese set. I think Sony did one, but I'm not 100% certain about that. So they'd, they'd reached, if you like, critical mass in terms of audience. Um, and it was established that every broadcaster was going to have a teletext service of some description. Um, and we started to get people coming in from all over the world to see what CFAX was doing. And Colin McIntyre or I or Ian Irving would show people around uh, and explain what we were doing. They made a couple of films, which I'm sure you've seen, mm-hmm. called This is CFAX and CFAX is Here, um, trying to tell people you know, what, what it was all about. Um, and uh, we were on duty, myself and another sub-editor called Peter Winter, 
when uh, a gentleman called Benjamin Barton Smiley III from Texas came over and uh, Colin said, can you guys show him what we're doing here? And we did. Um, and he had been sent over to the United Kingdom to attend a conference on behalf of his boss, Marshall Field, who owned the Chicago Sun-Times newspaper, um, a couple of other newspapers in other cities, and five UHF TV stations. So he had the broadcast medium, he had the news services for the newspapers, and Marshall Field had, had seen CFAX and sent Smiley over because he said, we could do that, we could do that, we could be the first people in the United States to have a similar service. So we showed Ben around. Um, about a month after that, um, he came back and went to Logica and said, I'd like to buy a contact system, please. Mm. And they nearly fell off their chairs because it was worth a lot of money. <laughs> um, and then he contacted Pete Winter and myself and said, would you like to come to Chicago to help set up and run the first commercial telefax service in America? Um, Pete went first. Um, I wasn't sure about going because at that point, Judy was pregnant with Claire, mm. our daughter. And moving to Chicago meant moving away from our, all the support network, her mum and dad, my mum, and all our friends and, and family. Um, and it seemed a bit, a bit dangerous to do that with, with a, a new, newborn around. So I turned it down initially. They flew me out to, to Chicago and I had a good look around and came back and we talked about it and just said, it's not right, not the right time. And then Pete, who had gone out there, called me up and said, look, I know you don't, you don't want to come and work over here, but come and have a, have a holiday. Bring Julie. So we did. We did. <coughs> um, we uh, fell for it. We oh, fell for it. Um, the old trick. The set up, yeah. yes. Um, Where's my um, return ticket? Yeah, quite. <laughs> no, that, 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 they, they paid for us. Um, no, we paid for the, the flight out there, didn't we? Mm. Um, and hired a car. We, we flew from London on Freddie Laker, Laker Airways, to Toronto, hired a car in Toronto, and then drove down underneath the Great Lakes to Chicago. Took a very long time. And while we're down there... Um, we got a message from Pete that said, look, I know I said come and stay with me, but I haven't actually managed to get myself a house yet. So, and I said, well, what are we going to do, Pete? And he said, well, we've arranged for you to stay at the Palmer house. So I assumed that was the house owned by Mr. and Mrs. Palmer, who were presumably friends of Pete's. So I said, oh, okay. So we continued to drive towards Chicago. Um, and he gave me an address in Chicago, which was... Was it Wabash. Wabash Avenue, which is the poshest, poshest street in Chicago. It's, it's the equivalent of Oxford Street, Regent right. Street, that sort yeah. yeah. So we're, we're looking for the address and pulled up outside the Palmer House Hilton Hotel. Um, and we're wearing jeans and T-shirts. We've been driving for like 16 hours. We're filthy dirty, really tired. And this gentleman comes and opens the, the car door and says, I'll park it for you, sir. Uh, went in and they booked us into the um, penthouse suite uh, on the top floor of the Palmer House Hilton 
And we've got in there and I've dumped the cases, picked the phone up and called Pete at the office and said, what on earth are you doing? We can't afford this, Pete. And he said, God, you're dumb, aren't you? They still <laughs> want you to come out here and work. So they've paid for you and Judy to uh, come out and have a look. And there, there wasn't a Teletext terminal already in the uh, ensuite or anything like that. <laughs> no, there wasn't. But it wouldn't have surprised me if they'd done that. Um, so we went and, uh, and met Pete and met the, uh, the rest of the, the guys who were running it um, and talked about it again and decided to go. So It, it was too good an opportunity to, to let go. Yeah, I mean, things like that don't happen all that often and no. you, have, you no. have to grab it. No. So uh, we, I, I went out first, rented a house. Um, in America, so many people move around all the time that there are companies that literally provide uh, tailored furnishings for houses. So I, I hired a, an empty bungalow, um, called this company up, and they literally came round with settees, chairs, everything, televisions, beds, the lot. Just throw it in there. Throw it in there. Yeah. Off you go. Yeah, set it all up. Yeah. Yes, it was oh, all there when we yeah. arrived about a month later. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah, um, yeah. And that was quite extraordinary. Keyfax was... That's sorry, the, the service in, in mm. Chicago was called Keyfax, obviously, Keyfax, a, a yeah, steel and, from CFAX. And was that on a, um, what was their term, PBS network? Is that, is that no, the sort was, of thing? It, was it that was, a main was a, broadcast? A private, private broadcast. It wasn't, a, it wasn't ABC, CBS or NBC. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a UHF TV station, which basically every city has at least one or two of these, these mm-hmm. UHF TV stations. Um, but because... Of the, of the tie-in with the Chicago Sun-Times newspaper, uh, basically they they had that as a mechanism to publicise the fact that they were offering teletext. Mm-hmm. Um, and they did a deal with, oh God, what was the name of the TV company? Zenith. Zenith. Zenith, Zenith. Zenith Television. Mm-hmm. Although I think they pronounced it Zenith. Zenith, Zenith. that's yeah. right. Yeah. Um, and they started making teletext-equipped televisions uh, using 525, not 625 line. But they still had the VBI. It just had three or four fewer lines than, than in the UK. Um, and we recruited uh, journalists. Um, we had a, a sports editor, a financial editor, um, myself as managing editor, Pete as managing director of the, uh, the service, um, and uh, all, uh, an advertising sales team. They were employing about 40 people uh, at, um, fairly quickly, fairly early on. Um, and because there were relatively few teletext sets out there initially, they decided you, uh, it was WFLD Channel 32, and that was on air from 6 in the morning until midnight, but nothing was going out overnight. Oh. So they said, well, can you do teletext in vision overnight? And we said, yeah, we can do that. So Night Owl was the result of that, and that was a six-hour rolling teletext news service. So we worked 24 hours a day through the night, um, putting up news, sport, financial information from all over the world, not just from Chicago. There was a big Chicago uh, local um, element to it, but it it had elements from all over the world. And they were 20-minute orbits, they were called, Um, and each one had a little animated graphic at the beginning of it. So there was a rocket taking off, uh, a, a, a bird coming out of a cuckoo clock, um, 
a submarine surfacing, all sorts of different things, um, most of which I created out there. Um, and that was just great fun. It was fantastic fun doing that. Um, but it was very hard work. And as I say, uh, I was working all the hours that God sent. Uh, I'd, work, I'd, I'd go into work at sort of nine o'clock at night uh, to start getting the programme ready. We'd work all the way through the night um, until six o'clock in the morning. Um, and then I'd come home, um, have breakfast, meet Judy, say hello to Claire and go to bed. Mm. Um, and it just got to the point where it was so draining. It really was. Mm. Um, <laughs> and there was also the added complication of being in Chicago in midwinter. Mm. Um, Chicago in the summer goes up to 100 degrees on a fairly regular basis. We were there on the coldest night ever recorded in Chicago's history when it was minus, is it minus 32? With, with the wind with chill the wind factor. factor. It's the windy it city, isn't it? Yeah. Well mm. named, yes. Mm. It is it well was, named. Yeah. Uh, and that was the night our central heating packed up. Mm. So we were huddled, the two of us and Claire were huddled around the fire, a gas fire, because it was the only heating we had. Mm. Um, and it was just starting to take off. Telefax in the States. I was offered the chance to go and run a different Telefax operation in Cincinnati, um, which was going to be called Electra, run by um, uh, TAF Broadcasting. Um, and I decided I didn't want to move to, to Cincinnati. So I recommended that a lady called Hilary Goodall, who was another one of the people I'd worked with in CFAX, was a suitable candidate. And they interviewed her um, and she took the job. Uh, in, so there were there were then two telehealth services operating. Uh, I think it, in uh, ultimately there were about five. World, it was called World System Teletext, mm -hmm. which was the British standard, mm -hmm. um, and it was competing with two others, Antiop, which was the French version, yeah. and Teledon, mm -hmm. which was the Canadian version. Mm -hmm. uh, but World System Teletext was was much more flexible. And it was, it was the one that eventually won the Telefax race. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it got to the point where I was just exhausted. I'd, I'd done just about everything that I wanted to do out there. And that's when um, Colin McIntyre, who had retired from CFAX, contacted me to tell me that a new company called Intelfax Limited had won the contract to provide Teletext for Channel 4 which had just started up in 1982. This new channel everyone was waiting for. We've Absolutely. had three channels for all this time. And, yeah. then, uh, and suddenly there were four. four. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I asked him quite a few questions about it. I had an interview uh, for the Intel Facts job um, in Chicago and um, said yes. And, and it, it was quite funny because when we, we went out there, I think Jules had second thoughts about it and, and was, was a bit worried about being all on her own with, with a little one, not that, knowing anybody out there. That, that's right, yes, I'm, um, because the only two people I knew were Mort and Peter, mm. and I knew they were going to be working uh, on, on night shift, so that kind of left me and Claire um, to, to fill the days. Mm. Um, and by the time uh, that I got the offer of the Intel Facts job, We'd done a complete switch. Judy'd made loads of friends, mm -hmm. um, and I just had enough of life in America. Um, it, it, was it, it was very different because for me, I, I wasn't working, um, so it was a, almost an extended holiday. 
Um, but because they were paying him a, a serious amount of money, they expected a serious amount of work, of work in return. Mm. Um, and it was very um, high pressure um, but all the time he was there. It was quite different from the BBC. With the BBC, if you had an idea for a way of enhancing the service, you had to go through about four different committees to get it accepted. In America, if you had a new idea for something that you could do with Keyfax, the Smiley, the, the, the head honcho, would basically say, great, if it works, brilliant. If it doesn't, you're out. Mm. It was that simple. Yeah. You know, it, no no, no it, checks and balances no, as such. It's just if that, it works, yeah. you're, you're a genius. If it fails, you're out on your ear. And, and that's, that's quite a lot of pressure to work under all the time. Um, the other thing I should mention about Keyfax was that um, Logica sent Ray Goff to Chicago along with another guy called Trevor Armstrong from Logica um, to provide the technical support for the, the transmission system. Um, and Ray is an extraordinary software engineer. He's an extraordinary software writer. He would come and sit in the newsroom behind the journalists who were creating teletext pages and say, why'd you do that? Why do you, why are you doing that? What colours are you putting in there? And he would just watch people. And then he'd go away and tweak the software to do it automatically. Mm. And he was an absolute genius. Mm. Absolute real genius. Um, and I, I came back. I said, yes, I'd, I'd come back and run Intel Facts. And uh, after... When we first started with Intel Facts, we had one contract, just Channel 4. Um, and slowly we decided that, that we couldn't simply rely on, on one big contract. Um, we, we didn't want to be vulnerable in case Channel 4 changed their minds. So we started to look for other broadcasters who might want teletext. Um, and the second one that we, we signed up was S4C. Um, the Welsh Channel Pedwa Cymru mm -hmm. <coughs> uh, the Welsh equivalent of Channel 4 um, and because they were showing a lot of Channel 4 programmes interspersed with Welsh language programmes um, it made sense for Intel Facts to do their teletext as well um, but we had to employ Welsh speaking journalists in London to actually write the, the, the Spectel page, it was called mm. Spectel their, their Spectel, service yeah. um, and Slowly, from that, that small beginning, Fortel, then Fortel and Spectel. The next one we got was Supertext, when Super Channel started. And that was on the Marco Polo, B, BS, the old BSB. It was, yeah. that's right, yeah. Um, and we were quite successful in going out and, and looking for other business. And in order to make that practical, we decided that we needed to have our own transmission systems so I contacted Ray, in, who was still in Chicago at that point, who married an American girl, and, and explained the situation and said, are you interested in coming back and um, setting up a company next to Intelfax to uh, provide hardware and software? Um, and he said, yeah, I could do that. Mm. So we set up Intelfax Developments Limited, which was the hardware and software arm of Intelfax, Ray came back and he produced um, a teletext transmission system called an Atom, which was Advanced Teletext Origination Module. 
Some, he, he loved acronyms. I, really yeah, some, I do wonder with these uh, boffins, they, they spend they spend longer making the christening the machine than they do building yeah. it sometimes. And also, he'd seen what I'd done in Chicago with the rolling tele the uh, animated teletext, um, and Channel Four when it started wasn't selling its own advertising. The ITV companies were doing the advertising sales. But because Channel 4 was a very niche channel and very new, the, the viewing figures were, were pretty dire to start off with, so relatively few people were buying advertising on it. So they had lots of blank spaces where there would be a commercial break. Um, and um, Justin Dukes, who was the managing director at Channel 4, said, can you fill them for us? Mm. Yeah, Justin said, can you, can you fill the, uh, the gaps? So we, we did something called Fortel on View, which was just a series of rolling Fortel pages. Fortel was a very different kind of teletext service. It ran piggyback initially on Oracle. Uh, Oracle were very unhappy that Channel 4 had given a separate contract to provide teletext on the Channel 4 yeah. network. There was an assumption that they would get the gig, I'd imagine. Exactly that. Um, so there was a lot of tension between Intelfax and Oracle. Um, and Fortel wasn't doing news, wasn't doing sport, wasn't doing finance um, in the way that, that other teletext services were. We were simply a programme-related support service. So we were previewing programmes, we were inviting viewers to take part in programmes, um, and basically just providing nothing but programme-related support. Um, so it was relatively easy in that case to take those pages, roll them through you know, on a cycle, uh, and fill... Uh, we were filling 1 minute 40 seconds, 2 minutes 40 seconds, and 3 minutes 40 seconds advertising breaks. Um, and there were days when it was all full turn on view. There was no commercial advertising at all. Um, obviously, that slowly changed. Hmm. Um, and Ray, when he came back and he saw that, and he saw what I'd done with rolling in uh, teletext uh, pages in Chicago, and he said, we, we could build a machine that will do that. Um, and thus was born something called the right box. <laughs> right standing for rolling in vision teletext engine. <laughs> Another great acronym. Um, and that allowed us to do all sorts of that. You could transmit pages at the rate of two per second on that. So you can actually, they were very jerky animations, but, but it worked. Um, and it got a lot of attention. And at that point, we decided that we needed somebody who was probably better at graphics than I was, um, and also who could do it on a full-time basis. I mean, I'm running the company, so I don't have a lot of time to do the, the actual day-to-day -day stuff. So I went back to CFAX and asked Ian Irving if he would like to come and work for Intelfax mm. simply to do all the graphics. Mm. And he jumped at the chance. Mm. And some of the graphics he produced were absolutely stunning. Mm. Um, and They're iconic. I mean, um, They really are. We're, we're at a table where we've got some 4T the dog, yep. which I believe is an Ian Irving, isn't it? <coughs> that was Ian Irving's idea. Yeah. Um, uh, he basically said, I, I could do a, a, a Teletext cartoon serial. Um, and we talked about it, and I said, go for it. And the result was 40. Um, and it, it became a real cult thing, 40. Um, MIT in Massachusetts, the Massachusetts Institution of Technology, adopted 40 as their mascot. So it was, it was on a worldwide basis. 
Um, and Ian did a brilliant job with that. He's, uh, he's a very clever man with teletext graphics. Mm-hmm. And then, um, as far as the, the growth of Intel Fats was concerned, we started, uh, we got a number of, of satellite and cable channels. We did UK Living, UK Gold, the things that Judy used to do, Discovery, yeah. BBC World, BBC, BBC Prime. Prime. Uh, at its peak, we were providing teletext for 35 different broadcasters. 35. Yeah. Wow. And Judy, at that point, the, the kids had, had got off her hands and she was looking to get back into doing something. Um, and by trade, she's a proofreader, which means she's incredibly accurate. So we said, well, would you like to work from home producing teletext pages? So Ray designed something called a write editor, which was the, the production VDU, um, had a couple of dongles, Judy stuck it in the back of our PC mm-hmm. and started producing teletext pages. I, I worked from home in the, in the early days when you had the, um, a, a strange sort of music when you dialed in uh, on the modem, mm. uh, waiting for it to connect. And then, uh, so I could, I could work from home, create the pages, and then dial in and send them into the office. So, from my point of view, two young children, that fitted in very well. Um, it was a good job to have. Yeah. And, and it meant that we could continue to expand. I mean, we were employing a lot of people at that point. Um, but it meant that uh, a lot of the things like the, the programme listings, which you don't really want a, a fully trained journalist to spend their time mm. reproducing tele- uh, television listings. Mm. Jules was quite happy to do that, and because she's a proofreader, she didn't make mistakes. Mm. And I can't say that about many people who <laughs> work on teletext. Uh, this is it. It's, um, it's probably the latest, you know, going right, right at the beginning where you're running two floors to find out where your error lane. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, it's, it's not a very forgiving uh, medium because it's, it's out there and other people can see it perhaps before you can. And, and of course, as soon as you see it, it's a glaring error and... You know, yeah, hits you between the eyes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, it takes a special sort of person really to stick their head out there and do it. So, proofreading is uh, absolutely yeah, it's an important, vital. It's, it's a vital part of it. Um, and Jules went on to work for for other publishers um, after she left Intel Facts, um, and. That they were belittling the role of the proofreader, weren't they? Saying, yeah, well, so we don't uh, really need proofreaders. I had one editor who, who said that it was um, an expensive luxury. Um, and I, I was working in, on a, a, a directory which involved addresses and telephone numbers. And if you get those wrong, <laughs> and it's in print... It's, <coughs> uh, it, you look it, stupid. You do look stupid. And the, the people whose names and addresses it relates to get very cross. Mm. Very true. Mm-hmm. They do, and uh, also with, uh, I, I guess with proofreading, a lot of people misinterpret the role as well because they think that you're providing a critique on it, exactly. and you're not. Absolutely. You yeah. can. You, I could write the biggest load of rubbish going, and all you're going to do is put, make sure the commas are spaced in the right uh, way, and, exactly. and it's grammatically correct. Yes, yeah. and people can and accurate. Can understand and she says, mm. you've got telephone numbers and addresses yeah. in there. You can't get those wrong. Yeah. Mm. But anyway. Yeah. Yes, um, no, it's not not a critique at all. It, it's just that it's all about accuracy and, mm, and precision. Mm, that's it. You can say, well, grammatically and everything was absolutely correct, but it was still a lot of old rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> um, the other way that Intel Facts expanded, um, I, I, at the beginning of this, I mentioned that Teletext started uh, as a medium pr- to provide subtitles for the deaf. 
uh, now all of the subtitling on uh, British television was actually done either by the BBC or by um, something called ITFC, which was uh, Independent Television Facilities Centre. Um, they did all the subtitling for Oracle uh, and on Channel 4. And Channel 4, uh, as, a, uh, as part of its brief, was trying to encourage the growth of independent production companies. Um, we were doing their teletext for them, and they decided to put out to tender their um, subtitling for the deaf. And it was set in statute that the Broadcasting Act of 1982 said that all broadcasters must provide an increasing percentage of their programmes with subtitles for the deaf. Um, and I can't remember the exact percentage numbers, but I think when they put the call for tender out, it was going to be something like 20% of all programmes had to have subtitles. Mm. Um, now, Intelfax didn't have any experience with subtitling at all. But we thought, well, we've, we've got the technical expertise through Ray. Um, we'll put in a bid for it. And we did, and we won it. <coughs> um, and that was a, a real sea change. That, that was a, a huge increase in our turnover. Uh, I think the first contract we had for their subtitle was worth about 1.1 million. Mm. Um, and then suddenly, with a bit like Michael Raggett in the early days of, of Fortel, we suddenly thought... Uh, we need to find somebody who knows what they're doing with, uh, with subtitling. So um, we went to a guy, a, a chap called Guy Roston, who was the head of subtitling for Oracle, and said, would you like to come and work for Intelfax and do all of an organised Channel 4 subtitling? And he said yes. And we also uh, poached from Oracle a guy called John Hedger, who was their technical director, and he and Ray knew each other and got on really well. So... John joined Intelfax as technical director uh, to work with Ray, and Guy Roston came in as head of subtitling, director of subtitling. Um, and I think we poached a couple of, inter of uh, Oracle's subtitlers, but we also recruited a number. Um, and that number of subtitlers went up and up and up and up year on year as we had to continue to increase the amount of subtitling we were producing mm -hmm. for Channel 4. Um, Ray Goff then produced uh, a subtitle production terminal. And I can't remember the acronym for that. Oh, God. Was it like on a stenography machine sort of thing? No, it, 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 was, it was a, a, a normal um, keyboard. Um, but what you're talking about is live subtitling. Mm -hmm. That's the other guy we poached from Oracle, a guy called Lon Asman, who was an American stenographer and most extraordinary watching him work uh, I, I used to love it because he would sit uh, on a, a stenograph machine which is sort of about I suppose it's about the size of a football really uh, with keys all over, all over the place um, and he would sit there with a pair of headphones on not looking at the picture with his eyes shut just going like that with the key, uh, pressing different keys to produce different words and it was yeah. absolutely incredible and he could do it at the rate of about 180 words a minute mm. well I'm speaking at the rate of about 140 or 150 words a minute um, and Lon was just extraordinary it would still make mistakes from time to time it still does now mm. I mean I've watched live subtitling relatively recently mm -hmm. and some some of the stuff you get up on the screen you think 
what the hell is that supposed to be? Well, yeah, I mean, it, um, I've, I've just said, I've, coming in today, I read something, uh, Channel 4 News yesterday, The um, they had a correspondent on there who was asked about the UK economy and, um, you know, there's one, one point of view was put to her that a politician said it was all the fault of the markets and she said, that was absolute bollocks, she said. And then uh, at the end, they issued an apology, but they said, we've checked with the ITC guidelines, and actually that's a grade two swear word. Yes. However, we must apologise for the subtitling where it was spelt bullocks. <laughs> <laughs> and that was oh, only yesterday. Classic. So that was only yesterday, right. in, uh, 2022. So yeah, it's yeah. been a perennial thing with subtitles. And, yeah. uh, but yeah the, the, the yeah the, the subtitles are absolutely incredible and the, you you mentioned twenty percent as if like that was like a groundbreaking and and you were it, getting it many millions from that i mean yeah. now i don't know what we're at now <coughs> um it's probably up around eighty percent i think I, yeah. I don't think it's no because we've actually looked for subtitles i'm a bit hard of hearing now mm-hmm. <coughs> so I do use subtitles um and sometimes there there just aren't any they, they haven't got around to hundred percent yet. But it's not far off. Mm. Um, and now, because I know how difficult it is, um, I, I take my hat off to all the, the subtitles mm. who are currently producing it. You can forgive some of the errors because of Absolutely. the speed that the, that the yeah. uh, person is, yeah. talk, is speaking at. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that um, my, my hearing, I don't think, is that bad, but I'm now beginning to bring the subtitles up for dramas where people speak quietly yes. or if there's a local twang or something yeah. like that or if they're like showing an american show and and, they, and they're mumbling you know yeah. you're, you're going to get them subtitles up now yeah where's that photograph which one that one there what we got here this one this one that's it okay. uh, uh. yes sorry i'm, I'm showing yes. carl a photograph for the benefit of the tape those two guys there, John Nunn and Les Cousins. These two at the far end here. Yeah, that's right. Uh, are from SCPD. Mm-hmm. I wish I could remember what SCPD stood for. It was a, it's a technical innovation group of the mm-hmm. BBC. So these were the guys who were involved in the early stages of, of teletext, of, mm-hmm. of actually um, coming up with the idea in the first place, um, and and then developing it on. Mm-hmm. Um, and that picture is it Olympics in 1978 that's right yeah yeah um, they they were actually sent out uh, with um, I think it was a, a lady called Audrey Adams who was the one of the sports she's not on the no. on, yeah uh, on that list there um, she went to Moscow mm-hmm. uh, with a telefax terminal CFAX terminal and was putting in live results from the Moscow Olympics so those guys had to go with her to make sure that all the technical side of it worked properly. And, and they, it did. And the handlers, the KGB handlers, were on the other side of the, <laughs> of the, the picture there as well. Quite send, sending, Censoring. Yeah, sending secret signals out on, on, yes. a, on a vertical blanket. I often, often yeah. wonder whether CFACs could have been used in that way. But there's an addendum to that story. Mm-hmm. One of the guys that we employed on Intel Facts was a chap called Stephen Rosenberg, Mm-hmm. Uh, who came straight from college. Uh, he was a, a very young lad when he joined us as a reporter, as a sub-editor. Um, and he was fluent in Russian mm-hmm. and decided after a while that he'd really like to go and experience life in Russia. Um, 
And he came to me and said, look, I'd like to go over there and see if I can sell an Atom Teletext transmission system. Um, Would you let me have one? So I said, well, how likely are you to be able to sell it to the Russians? And he said, I think I can do that. And he went to a company called, he went, we gave him one. Um, and he went to a company called Austin Kino in Moscow and installed an Atom Teletext transmission system and was responsible for producing Teletext for Austin Kino for about three years. Mm. And um, then, I don't, I'm not too sure what happened uh, at that point, but he then re-emerged as the BBC's Russia correspondent and he is now the BBC's Russia editor. That's where I recognise the name from. The yeah. Rosenberg. Yeah, yeah. You'll see yeah. him regularly. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Or he started the Intel Facts. So was there at some point where Oracle did come back in, or the style? Did did you did you copy the style of Oracle to keep the continuity in? No, we um, Ian Irving designed all of the Fortel mm-hmm. graphics, um, and while Fortel was was being produced by Intel Facts. Oracle was completely separate. Mm. Um, I mean, they, they grumbled and, and moaned about it. And, and particularly um, because uh, when Channel 4 started doing things like American football, mm. uh, which became hugely popular, Fortel started producing American football-related information, which included results. Mm. And Oracle hated it and, and complained to the ITC that we should be stopped from doing that. And the ITC said, it's not a matter for us, it's a matter for Channel 4. So why would they be so upset about the results? Is it because you, did they feel because that we, the information... Because we were treading on their toes, yeah. basically. Um, we, you yeah. know, we were pulling people away from, from their mm. sports information. Um, and that happened on a number of occasions. Um, Fortel had a number of, of uh, areas that we specialised in. One was um, American football... Another one was music because of things like the tube mm. and gas tank, which were yeah. the big pop music yeah, programs. Holland and yeah, um, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so we had something called Four O'clock Rock, mm-hmm. which was run by Sally Reedy Cross, the lady who was in that other picture, um, and they complained about that, saying that we shouldn't be allowed to to be doing reviews of records of people who were appearing on the tube or gas tank. Well. Why not? We're a program-related support service. And what's it got to do with them anyway? Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, we, we did have one fairly major meeting hosted by the ITC, as it was then, with Geoffrey um, Hughes, the editor of Oracle, and me and Frank McGethigan from Channel 4. Um, and the ITC basically said, you can shout all you like, Geoffrey, mm. but they're not doing anything that they're not allowed to do. Mm. And they stopped complaining at that point. But they... They didn't like Intel Facts at all. And, you know, from a, taking a step back objectively, I can understand why. I would have been exactly the same if somebody, some interloper yeah. had come in and started... And that you probably had the you probably had the freedoms that they craved as well, yeah. you know, so you could come in with, you know, you could come in with your own ball and, and play on their pitch, I yeah, guess. So, exactly. yeah, I'll, yeah, you can understand that, I guess. And uh, did, you have any, um, did you have any employees who went the other way? Um... Who went no, from Intel Facts to CFAX or didn't. Oracle? Maybe when Intel Facts ended, which was 2012, I think. Is that right? I left in 2001, and Justin Dukes and Frank McGettigan 
ran it after I'd left. Mm. But they lost the Channel 4 subtitling contract uh, to the BBC. Mm. Uh, I um, will never forget the week that Princess Diana died in 1997. <coughs> um, I had been working all hours that God sent. Um, Intel Facts at that point was going through quite a difficult period financially um, and there was quite a lot of infighting. It's, it's, it so often happens with companies. You start small, you grow, you get more successful, you grow, you grow, you grow. And then people who have not been there from the beginning start to, to change the course of the company or try to. Um, and there was there was quite a lot of, of not ill feeling that's the wrong word for it quite a lot of difficulty I'll put it that way <clears throat> um, and I was getting very stressed over quite a long period of time and then Princess Diana died and I had a phone call from the company secretary Francis Colban um, it was about three o'clock in the morning I think wasn't it, it? Was, it was to yeah. say she died. And that she'd, heard, she'd had a phone call from Channel 4 saying they wanted to scrap all the subtitles that we had prepared and they wanted to go live because they were going to change the entire schedule to cover the, the crisis effectively. And I got up and I went into work um, to try to help organise all of that, that work going on. Um, I, think I, I think I worked for two days solid. I, I, didn't, I didn't come home. That you went in, it happened on the Sunday night, you went in on the Monday and the Tuesday. And I was just absolutely exhausted. And I, I don't remember exactly what happened. What I do remember uh, is sitting on the floor in the corner of my office crying mm. because I was just, I just had a complete breakdown. Mm. Um, and I was signed off by the doctor with clinical depression. Uh, I stayed away from Intelfax for four months. Four months. Um, and I went back and I shouldn't have done. I, I should have just called it a day there. Um, struggled on for the next four years or so um, and then ended up saying, I can't go on doing this anymore. I, I just have to leave and do something different. Um, and left the, the company. Justin Dukes from Channel 4 had been an advisor after he'd left Channel 4. Um, I got on really well with him. He's a really good guy. <clears throat> and, and the company said to him, will you take over as chairman? Well, Mort's not well. So he had. Um, and I, I, I had several discussions with him. Um, and Judy and I went into Channel 4 to have a meeting with, with Justin and with Francis Colban, the company secretary, um, and I thought it was just about me being made redundant, effectively. They, they said, look, we'll make you redundant so we can, we can pay you a compensation uh, fee. Um, and what it turned out was that they were not only making me redundant, they were making Judy redundant as well. Oh, I've, <coughs> I've been working for them for 10 years. Yeah. 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 Um, which came as a shock. And the date that we had that meeting was September the 11th, 2001. So we got home yeah. to turn the television on to yeah. watch planes flying into the World Trade Centre yeah. and it just felt like the entire world was, was collapsing. Mm. Um, 
And after that, I thought I do need to do something completely different, hopefully stress-free. I was riding a motorbike at the time, so I became a motorcycle courier. And it, it was just such a release and a relief not to have to worry about running a, a company that at that point was employing 135 people, turning over four and a half million pounds and, and all the pressure that that brings with it. And here I am, you know, riding to York or Bristol or wherever to deliver a parcel. It was just brilliant. I loved it. Yeah. But so that was the end of, of my time with, with Intelfax. It went on with Justin as chairman. He then employed Frank McGettigan, who, was, who had worked for him at Channel 4, um, to become chief executive. Um, and they, they went on for another... 11 years? Quite a few years. I think it was 10 years. 2012, I um, And during that time, they lost the, the subtitling contract. Um, and very slowly, everything, everything that we'd worked so hard to build up just fell away. Mm-hmm. Um, and not helped, obviously, by the fact that the internet had arrived mm-hmm. and was going gangbusters. Yeah. Um, and teletext became redundant, really. As I was leaving Intelfax, we were just starting to look and how we could get involved with web design and production and, and you know offering web services, but it never really it, it never had proper um, backing or, or financial support, um, so it didn't go anywhere. Mm. And uh, they eventually wound the company up in 2011, mm. um, and that was the end of that. And I said to Julie, um, there was a point when I was running it and it was really going well that I thought I can pass this on to my son. Mm. And not that he would, I'm not sure whether he would have wanted it or not, probably not actually, mm. given what he's doing now. Mm. Um, but it just seemed such a waste looking mm. back mm. that we put all this effort into building it. Um, and I suppose it's a story that, that many companies, you know, go through that, that sort of cycle mm. of starting small, growing, peaking, and then going back down yeah, that the way. decline afterwards, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but I will always be very proud mm. of what I did with Intelfax. It, mm. it had a hell of a toll on me. Yes. But I look back at it now very fondly with, with a, a, a lot of pride in, mm. in what we did. One of the things that, that you don't think about, when they asked me to be chairman, chief executive and managing director of the company, I was very proud and, and very grateful that they believed in me to, to be able to do that. But you don't actually think about what that means in terms of the responsibility because you're effectively three head honchos in one, which means there's nobody to refer up to. Mm. In a normal company, you get the managing director refers to the chief executive, the chief executive goes to the chairman. Um, so there's always somebody else to bounce things off. Mm. There was only me. Mm. And, and that's, that can get very wearing, particularly when you, you hit rough waters. Mm-hmm. Um, Everybody else had the luxury of stepping back and saying, you, your, yeah, decision, your decision. Your decision. Yeah. yeah. They yeah. could give their input, but they didn't have to make mm. the, dis- the yeah. decision. They didn't have the ultimate responsibility. It is quite a, um, a strange synergy between your job at, um, in Chicago, mm. where if you had an idea, you, it, was, it, it, you know, it floats or you're dead. Fine, yeah. just go ahead with it. And you ended up with the same similar philosophy with being three corporate reports in one. Yeah. Whereas, you know, if that went wrong, you felt that you were dead as well. And it's yeah. quite strange how it, that philosophy mm. sort of caught up 
with, with the business model in the UK, which was something that you were escaping from. Yes. Well, so, I, I suppose yeah. when Justin took over from me, he'd, he'd been managing director at Channel 4. Mm-hmm. So, and he, I mean, he was a major um, player with a company called Triple I, Investors in Industry. He was one of the guys who advised them whether, whether to invest in a company or not. <clears throat> and he put quite a lot of his own money into Intelfax to, uh, over a period of time. Um, so he had, A, the experience of being a senior manager that I didn't have. I mean, when I, I joined Intelfax, I'd been a sub-editor, I'd been a chief sub-editor, and I'd been an editor, but I had no experience of, of the man management side of it, if you like, and the accountancy side of it. Uh, I was very lucky at Intelfax initially because um, the, the company secretary, Francis Colbert, was a lovely lady, very well organised uh, and, and did a lot of the sort of grunt work, if you like. And I had a brilliant financial director called Nigel Turner, who I got on really well with, um, who was incredibly supportive. But, um, yeah. As I say, it's, uh, it was a, it's been a great part of my life, yeah. Intelfax. Yeah. Um, and Teletext in general has, you know. I, I'm, altogether, I started at, at um, CFAX in 1974, mm-hmm. and I stopped working for Intelfax in 2001. So, you know, 26, 27 years of my working life um, was all wrapped up in Teletext. And it's twixt with the lifespan of Teletext in the UK as yeah. well. So you saw it from the inception to I was there at the beginning. And that mug, the CFAX mug, was when they actually pulled the plug at Television Centre yeah. to turn the last CFAX service off mm. in 2012. Yeah. And uh, they invited me to go back and, uh, mm-hmm. and watch what was happening. Yeah. It's quite strange, really, to, to have been involved in a medium that was so successful over a very short period of time and then vanished mm. like that. Mm. It's, it was very bizarre. Yeah. I've talked to so many people about what I did, did at, at Teletext, both at the BBC and at, uh, at Intel Facts, and the number of people who get so enthusiastic about it and say, I really miss it. Mm-hmm. You know, I used to go on, on page 302 on mm-hmm. a Saturday to watch the football results, mm-hmm. or you know, the horse racing results, or whatever, or get the weather. Yeah. And it, it really made an impression on an awful lot of people, and I was part of that, Yes. and I'm very proud of that. Yeah, and great. And there, there was one chap that we met at the um, uh, Centre for Computing History at, mm. uh, um, who came up to Mort and said, um, You helped me learn how to read. Oh, um, do you remember him? <coughs> I do. Um, um, and he said, uh, I said, Hey? And he said, Yeah, I used to use the subtitles because he's dyslexic. Mm. And he said, It helped help me to learn to read. Because he had someone speaking in the background mm. and he could read the words yes. they were speaking. Yes, it made sense to him. So, um, and you don't think about that, no. those sort of spin-offs, yeah. of, of how it can change people's lives, and it mm. did. So, and and obviously, the obvious yeah. way that, that people who are hard of hearing mm-hmm. can now enjoy a television programme that they wouldn't have been mm. able to enjoy before. It also, it gave you um, opportunities to travel mm. um, because um, you were part of the um, EBU um, Teletext group, Teletext group, mm-hmm. which stood for European, European Broadcasting European Union. Union. Yeah, Teletext um, group, and I was also for a while um, chairman of the British Video Text Industries Association, uh, yeah. um, which basically was Oracle, CFAX, 
there weren't, there weren't any other UK broadcasters involved in it at that point, but BT mm-hmm. were running View Data at the time, or Prestel as, as it was then. Mm-hmm. Um, and all the manufacturers were there, so Mullard, Phillips, mm-hmm. um, Marconi, mm-hmm. you name it. Um, and I've been going to meet, I've been a member of it virtually since the moment I joined Intelfax in 1982. Mm -hmm. Um, And I suspect partly because of that, um, I got invited to join the EBU Teletext Working Party. Um, And that meant going all around Europe, watching Mm -hmm. what other broadcasters were doing with Teletext. Mm -hmm. So I ended up going to Amsterdam to meet the people from NOS and learn what they were doing. When I was at um, CFAX, I actually got seconded to ARD ZDF in Berlin, um, who were just starting a teletext service, and they wanted somebody to, to show them how to use graphics, because they weren't using graphics at all. And, I, and why they picked me to go instead of Ian Irving, I never did quite understand, but they, <laughs> they picked me, so I went. Um, and then when I joined the EBU Teletext Working Party, we went everywhere, Vienna, um, Stockholm, Copenhagen, Mm-hmm. You name it. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these countries still use teletext. Uh, <coughs> they've yeah. managed to not turn it off completely and, and, and actually just have it as a web server that, yeah. that, that can um, complement their programming. You could look back with some regret that the, the UK decided to, to, to lift the rails up as well as yeah. turn the it, system it is, off. The, the, I think the, the rationale behind it was that they were going to put all their energy into providing a digital service on the new digital output. Um, but as far as I'm concerned, they could just have kept Teletext going and, and digitised it effectively, mm. um, which is what a lot of other people have done. Um, mm. And you still have had the same benefits of being able to, to get to a page quickly, you know, um, mm. in, in, I suppose their argument was, well, if people want that information that quickly, they can get it through the internet. But it, it did seem like a, a retrograde step to me to turn it all off at that point. Mm. It really had a sort of quite striking effect because it was something big had happened. Um, and we were always taught, you don't put silly, trivial stuff on news flashes. It's the big stuff. It's mm. for the, the big top stories. Um, and that way people recognise it. Mm. Yeah. So, that's yeah. breaking news. Mm. Yeah. Mm. yeah, that's right. Yeah. My, my news flash moment was um, the Gulf War. I yeah. think that came up, uh, I think it was, I was watching Oracle at the time because it happened at night and BBC probably went off air, but I had yeah. the Oracle one on and it was um, in January 91, I think, or 90. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and it was uh, the USA have um, invaded, um, have, I can't remember the precise wording, but yeah, the Gulf War one of Lord start- Desert Storm. Yes, Redwood Vote against Margaret Thatcher as well. Yeah. That was, that, that came out seconds before it was announced on the... Um, on the, on the on the BBC, yeah. it was as if the newscasters had waited for it to go up on teletext before right. they before they announced it. I, I bet that wasn't the reason; they just weren't quick enough. <laughs> yes. <laughs> How did industrial action affect the uh, teletext services? Did it affect them in any way? <clears throat> um, it was very interesting that um, when the BBC newsroom went on strike, all the members of CFAX were members of the NUJ, including me. I was the father of the chapel at, at the uh, at CFAX um, NUJ branch. Um, and when they went on strike, we basically worked a rule. We, uh, you know, we, we wouldn't work overtime. Um, and the, the, the unionisation, Colin himself, 
was an ex-NUJ member. Um, so he was he basically sort of stayed out of it and didn't try and put any pressure on us. But <coughs> one of the, uh, the interesting union matters that we had at CFAX was that they had a lady called Liz Holdaway who was attached to CFAX from, I can't remember what department she came from, but it, it wasn't a news department, but she wanted to get into a, a news environment. And um, Andrew Todd, who was the director of news and current affairs at the BBC at the time, um, ruled that all people on attachment should have to go back to their parent department um, because of cutbacks. And Liz said, uh, I was promised that I could be here for two years and I've only been here for about eight months. And as father of the chapel, I said, well, we should have a chapel meeting about it. And we effectively threatened to go on strike in support of her. Um, and I remember having a meeting with Andrew Todd, who said, you're, you're just being ridiculous about this. You know, why, why are you fighting for this girl? Who's, and I said, because she's a member of the union that I represent. That's why. Mm. Uh, and eventually they climbed down and she stayed. Um, so that was... One thing I remember about the, the union at CFAX. <laughs> the other benefit that um, that we may not have touched on as well is the, is the computer literacy side of it as well. Yeah. Because the graphics had a Mode 7 mode very similar to the BBC computer that we went to school with. Yeah. Um, so the synergy of seeing the graphics that you were producing um, on the television to what we were using at school was a perfect synergy. So although you had people who perhaps were being assisted with their reading by looking at the subtitles, yeah. there's no way of knowing how many programmers um, that went on to make computer games and software would have actually been spurned along from, from what you were producing <coughs> on the television. Yeah. I, I forgot to mention that um, when I was talking about Intel Facts and Fortel, one of the things that, that Channel 4 was really keen to do was to, to explore ways that they could help computer literacy. Um, the BBC at that point in 1982 had been providing telesoftware for several years. Um, and we talked to Channel 4 and said, you know, we're quite keen on, on seeing whether we can provide a telesoftware service on, on Channel 4. And they said, go for it. And we work very closely with their education commissioning editors. Um, and that's another time we went back to the BBC and uh, hired a guy called Lawson Brown, who was the head of telesoftware for the BBC, mm. and said, come and work for us and we, we want you to do the same thing for, for Channel 4. Mm -hmm. um, and that resulted in the Fortel telesoftware adapter. Um, and I was racking my brains this morning... When it first came on the market, it was made by a company called OEL. And they went bankrupt fairly early on um, because they simply didn't have the infrastructure. A lot of companies did that in the computer yeah. boom, yeah. And it was taken over by another company who were producing exactly the same box, except it didn't say OEL on the front. It had their name. I can't remember the name of the company. <coughs> but anyway, um, Lawson did uh, work very closely with the, the education departments and we started putting out telesoftware and it was very successful 
um, and it was it was really started to take off. Um, again, just at the point where I ended up leaving. <laughs> yeah. So, to, but yeah, there, there's certainly a lot of legacy there. And speaking of legacies, um, I do want to bring up uh, the the fact that you've got evidence that you were the world's first electronic blogger. Um, so I, I do have a printout here. Um, that which has come from your collection, and it's actually a proper screen grab print from CFAX page 257, and it's a blog called The Pregnant Father. Yes. Um, so, what can you tell us about this then? Okay, as I've said um, previously, Colin McIntyre, as editor of CFAX, was really keen to try using it in different ways. Um, and when Judy turned around and told me that she was pregnant with our first child, I thought there's an opportunity there. I could write a column about it, um, about the experience of, of not being the mother, obviously, but about how the father interacts with what's going on in her body. Um, so I went to Colin and said, Look, I've got this idea. I'd like to write a column called The Pregnant Father. And he, he laughed heartily or pissed himself actually, um, and said that I think that's a great idea, do it. Um, and I started it, I think you must have been about three or four months pregnant yeah, at the time. Yeah, it was quite early on. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I did it every week until the end of the pregnancy. For about six months. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it was terrific. And it got a heck of a response from viewers. You know, people were writing in and, and you know, asking how Judy was and, what you know? Did we know whether it was a boy or a girl? Um, what we were going to, what names have we thought about, etc., etc. And to a certain extent, I'll tell you how that idea came about. When I was born, my father was sixty-two, my mother was forty-six. He was working for the Daily Mirror as chief reporter, and he wrote a column called "Georgie, Porgie, Sally, or Tom." I've still got it. Um, and basically it was about my birth um, and the fact that he and my mum were totally convinced I was going to be a girl. It, they'd already had two boys, Brian and Alan. I came along as a real afterthought um, and they'd settled on Sally as a name for me. I'm going to regret telling you this, I know I am. It's all right, it's only on tape. And uh, he got a huge response when it appeared in the mirror. Um, and that was long before there were books available to tell you what names meant. Um, and he said they couldn't decide what, what to call me. And a lady from Scotland wrote to him and said, I thought it might help if you understood what names meant. And she gave a breakdown of what all boys' Christian names meant. How she knows this, I have no idea, because this is long, long before the internet, obviously which he did, and they looked through the list and they saw Ian meant gift of God. And my mum said, I was 46, he was 62, the old man upstairs must have had something to do with it, so we'll call him Ian. He's Ian, definitely. <laughs> and that's what gave me that idea. Would I be able to ask you just to read one out? Yeah, of course. Yeah. But, I mean, this is one episode of The Pregnant Father by Ian Morton Smith. Morning sickness is no joke. Just ask any woman who has ever suffered 
and poor Julie started to feel queasy first thing in the morning. She was talking to a friend who suggested one of those well-known miracle cures, only this one has certain drawbacks for the father-to-be. It involves Julie eating digestive biscuits, a, bit, a digestive biscuit or two, before she gets out of bed in the morning. It's supposed to settle the stomach. Sounds fine, and it works. Only thing is, have you ever been woken up at 6.30am to the sound of someone crunching biscuits? Mr McVitie certainly has a lot to answer for in our house. I bet he doesn't have to suffer biscuit crumbs in between the sheets either. Although the baby is not due until the end of May 1980, we have already begun making preparations. The first thing we had to do was to sort through the junk in our spare bedroom, henceforward referred to as, quote, the nursery, unquote, and it amazed both of us how much we had accumulated over four years of a marriage. One other yeah. thing, I, yeah. sorry, it's just occurred yeah. to me, looking at those printouts, one other thing I did at the BBC at CFAX was to run a car review column. Um, and you have to wind the clock back to the point in, t in history where the BBC was very, very careful about being non-commercial, never endorse anything. You know, we're not an advertising channel. So I've always been interested in cars. Um, and I thought, I wonder if they'll buy it. So I went to Colin and said, I'd like to do a car review column. And, and he sort of thought about it for a bit. He said, oh, hell yeah, do it, do it. So I wrote to every manufacturer in the United Kingdom, said, I'm from the BBC CFAX unit. I want to do a car review column. Will you supply me with cars? And they all said yes. So for about two years, I'm guessing, something at like least, that. At least two. Maybe more than that. Um, I would go to the television centre um, the uh, Toyota people would drive a car up to the front door, call for me, I'd take the keys, I'd drive it for a week, and then they would come and pick it up, and Renault would come in behind them with the next test car, and I didn't, we didn't use our own car for months and months. Um, and I've got all the printouts of the, uh, um, the car reviews that I did. Um, they were sort of five or six pages, basically, of... of you know, what's it like to drive, how much spaces are in it. It was nothing particularly contentious. Um, and from the specifications as well. Specifications, well, yeah, yeah, you know, mm -hmm. length, engine size, etc. But it was just great fun. And the only thing that really annoyed me was that I tried and tried and tried to get Rolls-Royce to let me have a test car. <laughs> and then I got offered the job in Chicago, mm. and the guy who took over got the column... He got the wrong. First car, car he tested was a Rolls Royce. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Very welcome. Yeah. Fun. It's been delightful. Yeah, it's been fun remembering. You have been listening to Teletext People. Teletext People was presented by me, Carl Attrell, and is a quite high, no limit production. <laughs>